Check Me Out is made possible in part by a grant from Humanities Texas, the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Corporate funding for Hemingway is provided by Bank of America and additional supporters at pbs.org forward slash Hemingway. Hemingway from Ken Burns and Lynn Novick premieres in April 2021 on Panhandle PBS. More information is available at panhandlepbs.org forward slash Hemingway. You know, it's like there's nothing wrong. Like sometimes a guy just writes a book for dudes and that's all right. And that's why we have Beloved. I, I want more of all kinds of books. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. Welcome to Check Me Out, a podcast for book lovers. I'm Amy Hart, and today we are going to be talking about Ernest Hemingway. Uh, this is in conjunction with uh, Panhandle PBS and National PBS airing the Ken Burns documentary, Hemingway. Uh, that will air April 5th through the 7th of 2021. So today I have two guests with me who know way more about Hemingway than I do. So we're going to start right here. I would love for you to tell me your name and... How about why you like Hemingway? Alrighty, my name is Brandon Presley. I am Amy's husband. <laughs> I'm a huge Hemingway fan. I've always loved Hemingway, whether it be, you know, as a signed reading or just kind of on my own. I kind of went off on a rabbit hole when I was a kid, you know, knowing what the the upcoming um, assignments were for maybe the next year, and I was trying to get ahead and be cool and. And just kind of fell in love with his writing style, um, just the overall idea of, I don't know, seemingly how he changed the way American literature is written. Okay. And then, how about you introduce yourself? I'm Jonathan Baker. Uh, I'm a writer from uh, Canyon. I live in Maine now. Uh, so I make my living as a writer, and that comes... That, that is in large part because of Hemingway. In ninth grade, I went into my, uh, my school library, and I checked out The Sun Also Rises, and it changed my life. I'd never read anything like it. I didn't realize that uh, it was just so tragic, and, like, you know, I was so tragic because I was 15, you know, and I was like, man, like, this Hemingway really gets me, you know? Uh <laughs> And uh, I've loved Hemingway ever since. And yeah, so that's it. Yeah, it's personal for me. This time it's personal. So it sounds like you both kind of found him. You found Hemingway ar around the same time in yeah. your lives. Yeah. yeah. I think a lot of uh, teenagers, my son loves Hemingway and he's 17. Um, so I think a lot of I think a lot of teenagers find their way to Hemingway. Yeah. Do you think it, that's part of the required reading is what draws you to no, it first or no? It wasn't no, for you. I don't Hemingway is is not assigned as much as he used to be. Um, yeah, and some of it's just subject matter. Um, some of it I think that's where it finds like a young boy or man cuz he he wrote about things that are way above um, the teenage level. Um, like you said tragedy in in itself whether it be war, which is, you know, a good theme that he kind of carried throughout his life. But um the emotional struggle, the mental mental struggle internally that he kind of always had, kind of, I don't know, it's almost engulfed in all of his stories. Yeah, I think that Hemingway, um, he was, he, 
he was a proponent of what he called his iceberg theory, which is like everything is on the surface uh, and so much is hidden beneath, but he only shows what's on the surface. And what was on the surface was written in very short sentences with very often monosyllabic words, you know. So any ninth or tenth grader can read this um, like there's a lower lexile. Um, is that what it's called? Like an uh, education um, you know, it's like this thing where they filter, like, what grade level it is based on the right. sort of vocabulary and everything. Um, it's lower than Harry Potter. It's like e- the words are easier than Harry Potter, but the depths are so deep, you know. And so teenagers who are used to, like, performing for their parents or feeling um, like they have to be one way in a certain situation, but they're feeling all of these other things. It's kind of like a, a natural uh thing that they would be attracted to literature like this although of course Hemingway isn't just for teenagers but um right. or even specifically for teenagers <laughs> um but yeah i it's so easy to read it's so smooth it's like glass you know right we were talking the other night and um i I mentioned like he he writes simplistically but it's it's so much bigger than that because really um the feelings that i had that other authors have either criticized him for or, or basically pointed out is that he he considered adjectives in many ways a crutch. So everything is written really simple, but if you if you're paying attention to what's going on in the story, it kind of it shows like you like you said, everything below the surface is is way way more in depth than 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 it presents. Yeah. So I think we have an opportunity here to maybe dispel some of the myths of Hemingway. Well, I would love that because here's the thing. I what I get from Hemingway is typically a dude thing. Right. I feel like he's a guy, a writer for guys. And I don't know that that's necessarily true. I'm sure there are plenty of women that love Hemingway. Um, But I have, I'm I'm interested to see the Ken Burns documentary because I want to learn more about him. Because first things first, tell me a little bit about his background that you guys know of. Well, first let's... Let's touch on, like, what are the things that everybody knows about Hemingway? That he had a lot of cats, and he lived in Florida, and he committed suicide. Right, That's exactly. literally what I know. So how many of your of his books did you just mention? I have no idea. None. You mentioned none of his books. Okay. So it's not. <laughs> so he's not drawing influence on the thing. Well, well I'm saying and, the things that oh, everybody knows about right. him it are has about nothing, his life. Right. Yeah. And, and and sadly, yeah. I only know the names of probably three or four of his of his novels. Yeah, well, he only sadly. wrote he only wrote a handful of novels. Yeah, so, um, right. So, but I think <clears throat> outside of required reading, I don't know that it's something I would just go pick up. Right, I, I really don't know. So, I need you guys to tell me, like, why why is he important? Why is he? I mean, you've touched on his writing style, which I know was a huge deal, especially yeah. at that time, right? Yeah. Um, because we were going from what kind of writing into what he did. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, the reason I brought that up is like, I think that Hemingway's maybe the most famous American writer. He's definitely in the top five. But he's also, I think, the most misunderstood American writer. He's become villainized in the past 30 years um, and was even villainized in his lifetime for being this sort of like macho representative of the patriarchy Um and it does him a sincere disservice, um, which we can get into. We can get into the suicide. We can talk about the cats, too. <laughs> you know, the, the suicide thing, it's, it's really prevalent. I don't know how much you know about it. Where, you yeah. know, whether it be his dad. Right. His, or, 
Yeah, so his yeah. father committed suicide, his his brother and sister both committed suicide, and his daughter also committed suicide. Right. So and a granddaughter. Right. So and I think he had another uncle. Yeah, that, may, I don't know about the uncle, but yeah, it 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 is prevalent, and we can also yeah, since we're talking about it, yeah. Um, he so, also Brandon. Do you want to? What else do you want? To say? Oh, there was a a slight bit of trivia because. Um, there's a 2013 documentary called Running From Crazy with Mariel Hemingway. Right. And she kind of delves into, like, trying to distance herself while also embracing the name Hemingway. Um, and then um, Amy and I were discussing the other night. I remember in the 80s because I'd known about the suicides. And it, it's you know, it kind of got glorified in a way, almost in a bad way. But then it's, like, intriguing in some way. And then next thing you know, Mariel Hemingway is in, like, this made-for-TV Low budget movie called uh, Suicide Club, mm-hmm. and I, we were discussing. I was like, I wonder if it was just a bad movie choice, or somebody was trying to exploit the fact of who she was to put her in the book or in the movie. Yeah, I don't, I don't actually know anything about them. I don't remember seeing it. Well, but. death was an ever present factor in Ernest Hemingway's life. Um, I'll maybe do and you can jump in at any moment but i'll do like a quick five minute bio of hemingway so he's born in 1898 in oak park illinois um that's where frank lloyd wright was from so it's kind of the uh um, i didn't know that frank lloyd wright was maybe the uh Ernest hemingway of american architecture maybe i i just said that i haven't really thought it out but um uh but so hemingway his 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 mother was very overbearing and his father would take him hunting and fishing. And going into nature, as dangerous as it was, felt safer than being around his mother in some wow. way. So he had mommy issues from a very early <laughs> age. Um, and, uh, you know, he's a smart kid. He was good at English. And uh, when he was 18, um, World War I, you know, the U.S. had just entered World War I. It was like 1917. And he ended up at the Italian front and um he was an ambulance driver he was an ambulance driver right yeah. um there were a number of american authors yeah. who were ambulance drivers john dos passos e.e e. cummings um so they uh so hemingway was handing out uh cigarettes and and chocolates to right. the soldiers and a mortar shell went off and just shrapnel all through both of his legs um he was put in a hospital uh, for uh, and like I said, Brandon, yeah, it, was like, in. it was like six months. They yeah, like, six months. Yeah, I'd read it was like 227 pieces of shrapnel. Yeah, it was it was just shrapnel wow. everywhere. Wow. So, who knows what happened at the at the hospital? Yeah, this is famous thing. I don't. So he know. fell in love with his nurse. Oh. oh. And so they they uh, they made a movie out of this with uh, Chris O'Donnell and. Um, That's pretty cheesy. What was yeah. that called? What's her name? What's her name? Uh, Miss Congeniality. What's her name? Sandra Bullock. Sandra Bullock. Okay, Sandra Bullock and Chris O'Donnell. They made a movie. I never saw it. I don't know if it's good, but anyway. Uh, so this was this at 18 years old, he goes from being this confident, like strong guy who thinks that you know war, like that he's kind of untouchable, mm. to suddenly being very aware of his own mortality. Then he, you know, whatever it's called, Florence Nightingale syndrome or whatever, he falls in love with his nurse. He moved, he came back to the States after recovering and thought this nurse was going to come and marry him. And then he gets this letter that she's fallen in love. She was six years his senior. And she remarried. And she had fallen in love with an Italian serviceman. And he was destroyed in the same way that we all kind of remember our heart, first heartache or heartbreak. But this one 
was epic for him because it was all tied up with him almost dying and with world cataclysms and all this stuff. So, um, so that I think is the defining incident in his life. He would, it would show up in the sun also rises. It would show up in a farewell to arms. Um, and it would really start to echo. He, he would never really have a good relationship. He was married four times. He would always leave the women before they had a chance to break his heart again. Um, and, uh, so, this is, you know, at the beginning of the 1920s, and the 1920s are, you know, this is the the cradle of modernism in American literature. It's all about, um, you know, men coming back from the war. Uh, as, as far as, like, men writing novels, I'm talking about Hemingway, Faulkner, Fitzgerald. They were all writing about um, the fall. They were all writing about the death of old ways and how everything was becoming splintered and fragmented. So that's what Hemingway's novels are about. And when you read The Sun Also Rises, which was his first major book, the main character in that novel, he never comes out and explicitly says it, but you can you can understand that the thing is that the main character uh, has had, his name is Jake Barnes, has, um, I don't know how to say this delicately, he's had his genitals Ex- exploded during the war. He cannot he cannot be with a woman. And he's so he's in Paris, he's getting drunk, he's like and then eventually they go to Spain. He's going to the bullfights. There's all kinds of things with thinking about like a man who has no genitals and swords and bulls and things. <laughs> but uh but he's in love with this woman who's this sort of like sex pot named Lady Brett Ashley. She's this hot like socialite <laughs> and he just aches for her but he cannot complete it he can't do anything about it and this was the metaphor for the entire sort of male condition after the war it was like everything felt sort of meaningless and so from Hemingway's perspective all he could try to do the only the only tool he had was the truth the only thing that he could do was try to portray these feelings that he felt in some true way he was always talking about trying to write one true sentence and so um, when people paint Hemingway as this, I don't know, sort of narcissistic um, um, puppet of the patriarchy or something, it uh, it's the opposite of what he was trying to do, when in reality he was like trying to depict the fall of the patriarchy and the sort of sense of isolation um, that he and all the other guys who had come back from World War One, which was a meaningless war, and they all knew it, and he had almost died, and it, what was it for? And uh, and everything, you know, back in America, I'm almost done. Back in America, <laughs> back in the United States, uh, just like after World War Two, you know, we had Eisenhower and like the suburbs and stuff. World War One had the same effect. All the 1920s were all about commercialism. People kind of turned their back on politics. It was all about making money. It was all about being sort of fake. And everything felt false. And so he he is a true existentialist novel, just as much as Jean-Paul Sartre. And um, for that reason, that's why I fell in love with him when I was young, you know. And, uh, and it was also very hard for him that, you know, maybe his two greatest novels were in the 1920s when he was still in his 20s. And then he saw, saw himself slowly deteriorating over the 30s, 40s, 50s. He was in a couple of bad car crashes. He was in two different um, plane, crashes. plane crashes in Africa. Had tons of, um, you know, he's fractured his skull. He couldn't <coughs> concentrate. He began to drink to dull the pain. 
so when he eventually killed himself, he couldn't write anymore. He had lost the one thing that he had to really hold on to. Like his wives had repeatedly had left his right. wives, and he didn't really have anyone. He was alone. Um, and you can kind of see why he was like, you know, I'm just going to exit this thing the quickest way I know how because I can't do what I love anymore. I've, re- I've read some articles where people would say um, that he didn't see it as defeat. He thought it like he was winning. He was like, well, I can control this. Right. And Which is the same thing that the French existentialists would say, that suicide was the, the only true choice that a, that mm-hmm. a human had, you know, to de- right. sort of declare their independence from the universe. Well, right? and sadly, you have this lineage of multiple family members where obviously yeah. that was kind of, it seems like the line of thinking in that family. Right. It felt faded in some way. Yeah. But I think that he, it's, tr- it's really tragic. And the other thing is all the masculinity stuff, which, you know, we can, and you've been to his house, right, Brandon? And, right. And, I've been to the, the one in Key West. There, I know there's another one that's, in they Cuba. say it's in Cuba that's yeah. almost identical. Like I've seen pictures yeah. on some of the decorations and maybe for the tourist attraction version of it, it, it kind of represents it. Yeah. A similar vibe. I have a good story about the Cuba one that I'll tell in a minute. Okay. Yeah, so tell me about Cuba. And so I've heard that he's like he was like a big game hunter kind of. Right. Totally. Right, yeah. Super man's Fishing, man. Hunting like right. Yeah, and then stuff. Yeah. He, he wanted to be not only that but be unique. And then there there's a bunch of different legends and stories. But Key West did have a huge mice and rat problem. And then back in the day, you know, it wasn't like today where you just kind of figured out a way to get rid of them. Mm-hmm. So he he imported all these polydactyl cats, the cats with six toes. Um, when I went there, I think there was over 60 of them. And the, the tourists... still like the, the descendants of those same cats are still alive. Yeah, right? they're yeah. still alive. And they the caretakers know all their names and they all have a personality of their own. And it's, it's kind of unique. Um, he became known for the cats so much to where... Um, he was friends with Picasso. Picasso mm-hmm. gave him, you know, everybody knows Picasso was a painter, but he was also a sculptor. And he, there's this Picasso cat. And I thought it was one of the coolest things that I'd ever seen. In the late 90s, when I saw it, I was thinking, man, that would be the thing to have. Not, yeah. a, not a Picasso painting. That You know, the sculpture would be cool. Right. And actually, like a couple of years after I was there, somebody stole it. Oh, no. And then it was recovered, but it was destroyed. Oh. So now the one that's oh. there is a replica. Oh, man. And I guess they, the estate or somebody still has possession of it, but they did recover it. But I was like, what do you it, – it means so much more to, to be where it's supposed to be than it does if you, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. So tell me, at the estate itself, is it kind of like Graceland? Is it just tours and – It seems like a huge beach house. It's – every room has like a – it felt like a balcony that goes out to where – you could you could look in any direction and write. And then Key West is such a small island. I mean, it takes you maybe 45 minutes to explore the whole, whole length of the island. Um, the one thing was there. I mean, you're so close to the water that I always thought was funny. Um, now I'm drawing a blank. His wife at the time was basically, you're spending too much money. You're drinking too much. You're doing all these things. And he was like, who cares? I'm going to... I'm gonna put a swimming pool here. Yeah, like the ocean is right there. Why do you need a swimming pool? He's like, because I can. Right. So there's a swimming pool and it's still there. But at one point she got mad through a handful of change and it was like, you're gonna spend every dime we have down to the last penny. Yeah. And apparently, right where one of the pennies landed is at the head of the pool and it's framed into the concrete in like this little <laughs> glass thing. Mm-hmm. And they left it there to represent. Basically, he's like, well, cool. This is where I'm gonna put the pool. 
where, <laughs> where that penny landed. So it's just kind of a knee-jerk reaction, but he kind of took it to another level. Yeah. So tell us your Cuba story. Oh, okay. So yeah. I used to work at a bookstore called The Strand in New York City, and um, uh, one day I was there. I, I managed the sort of tables on the main floor in the fiction section, and the the woman who managed the floor came up and said, you're going to want to head back to the fiction section. There's this guy who's going to tell a story. It's worth it. So I go back, and there's this little old dude back there. And he he starts talking, and he's like, when I was a young man in the 1950s, I decided I was going to meet Ernest Hemingway. And he loved Ernest Hemingway. And so he bought a ticket to Cuba. He, uh, and he had just finished reading a, a, um I don't remember which book, but anyway, he had it like on his lap and he's like, you know, a little 20 year old kid. He's like, I'm going to go meet Hemingway. So he lands in Cuba and he's like, well, where do you look for Hemingway in Cuba? He's in Havana and he starts going to the bars and he just starts asking for Senor Hemingway, you know. And finally, (laughs) he talks to one bar owner who says, Senor Hemingway, yes, you like hire this taxi and then go, you know, to this certain place. So he hires a taxi, goes out into the middle of nowhere. The taxi leaves him and he sees, you know, these gates and there's a, there's a guy polishing a, you know, a, um, uh, a limousine there. He's like, this is Hemingway's house. So he goes there and he says, senior Hemingway. And the, the limousine driver says, yes, he's, he's in there, go around back. And, uh, so he goes around back and, and he looks up and there's, this is the house, and there's, you know, he's kind of seen it in Life magazine or whatever. And uh, Hemingway walks out onto the onto the porch thing and sees him, and and he says, "Who are you?" And he says, "Well, I, I'm just a great lover of yours, Mr. Hemingway, of your work, and I just wanted to meet you." And he says, "Well, come on up and have a drink." And he had two other people up there, and he he introduced him around to the uh, to his other friends who were like it was some like military guy, I don't know, Cuban, and uh, and they'd start to drink, and he drank with this guy. He he drank with Hemingway all day. Hemingway showed him around all of his house, showed him all of his art. His wife was sleeping in the bedroom. He's like, oh, just ignore her. He took him in the bedroom. He's like, <laughs> classic Hemingway, right? Like, like just ignore the woman, and uh, and. Uh, but yeah, he was like he said he could not have been more gracious to this wow. like, kid, random who stranger, up and then paid for yeah. his ticket or paid for his uh, his 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 taxi back to the city. And wow. uh, so cool. you know, like the thing about the like the the big game hunting, which we touched on and stuff like that. It, it's another thing with him being so close to death. The bullfighting is another example. Like, I, I maybe he felt. I mean, the the two the two defining uh, events of his life were th- that mortar shell when he was eighteen, mm-hmm. and that shotgun blast when he was sixty four, or three. Yeah. But, yeah. So, um, he, his his whole life was kind of bookended by by death, you know. And so he always was near death. He felt comfortable near death, and he felt comfortable in the company of men. Because that first defining, I think, uh, event at the Italian front and so many of the other, you know, he was at, in the Spanish Civil War um, as a correspondent, you know, and and uh, at World War Two, you know, he was at the D-Day invasion. He was at the liberation of Paris. He was a, a journalist, but he was actually running right. a, a group of like um, rebels in Paris uh, during World War Two. Like he was very comfortable among men. Which, you know, well, nothing wrong with that. one of the things that I've heard that this documentary is going to highlight 
is his sexuality because there mm. have been new things come to light <laughs> that are talking about how there was a chance that I think that he was maybe um, bisexual or something of that nature. And so they're going to discuss that during the documentary, which I'm really interested in hearing more about. It's possible. I haven't heard that. And yeah. I like, I mean, I've heard people always say that about any mm-hmm. guy who sp- spends a lot of time with other dudes. Um, and especially anybody who's so vehemently protective of his masculinity, it seems really like an obvious jump. Yeah. With Hemingway, it feels different. Like, you know, I'm often the first guy to be like, oh, he was gay. But, you know, like, <laughs> no, but totally. with Hemingway, it doesn't, that well, doesn't feel like him to That's me, what I'm but. interested to see. Like, Maybe, did they find yeah. some writings that we've never seen? Because I know that they have, there's a lot of, th- I mean, it's Ken Burns. Sure. You know, they went to great lengths probably to find a lot of things we've never the seen before. Details, yeah. yeah, so I'm interested to see what they what they've come up with. Yeah, I think the tragedy of, of Hemingway was that in the 1920s he was aware of the uh, existential nature of his own masculinity, and as time wore on, he was performing this uh, this kind of character. He became his he was the you know a true literary celebrity. His his character began to outshine his his work. And he began to sort of perform it more until it became this sort of postmodern, you know, like experiment or something where where did Hemingway stop and where did the sort of life photo spread begin, you know? And uh, and it became really kind of tragic because I think he he got swallowed up by his own fame and he did it to himself on purpose, you know? Um, I mean, he did write The Old Man in the Sea in the 1950s, which is still sort of like the same old theme of man going out into nature and trying to define himself against the overwhelming, um, I don't know, disquietude or uh, like danger um, or uncaringness of nature, you know, Mm -hmm. like that was the, the universe is an uncaring thing and all we can do is kind of try to hold our head high up against it. I think there's a quote I read about him that said, uh, you can always destroy a man, but you can never defeat him. And, yeah. And that's what a lot of people would say. That I love The Old Man in the Sea. It's one of my favorite books. Yeah, it's great. I think it defines more in depth than people will ever realize. But have you ever seen the movie The Gray with yeah. Liam Neeson? Right. It reminds me a lot of The Old Man in the Sea because the beginning of The Gray, you get a guy that's basically downtrodden. He has the gun, same shotgun. He's mm-hmm. literally about to off himself. Mm-hmm. And within an hour and a half's time of course you know the time span is different but an hour and a half of our time he's literally come to you know strap in those liquor bottles that are busted to his hands with tape and about to manhandle these wolves for pure survival Mm -hmm. when he knew he was going to take himself out before Mm -hmm. and you know with santiago and the old man in the sea he he was gonna lose no matter what yeah but he never gave up. Yeah. And I think that was really, it says more to the story and really to Hemingway itself. Because I know he cleaned up. He had quit drinking that I'd read during the whole writing of it and tried to yeah. reinvent himself. He but tried. Yeah. The, uh, you know, that was said potentially, and I hope they discuss it in the, in the, um, in the documentary, about his mental health. Because it, it was said that there was a chance he was bipolar. Yeah. You know, his dad was a physician that was... Right. Potentially bipolar as well. He would disappear mm-hmm. weeks on end and mm-hmm. kind of show back up. Right. The his mom was really the, I don't know, the driving force. They said she was the breadwinner. She was 
um, I think she was like singer songwriter. She was, she was a she was, was an a performer. Singer. Yeah. yeah. Um, but she was the one pulling in the money, even mm-hmm. as a physician back in the day. He was mm-hmm. not the most profitable. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know. I saw some of his demise when he begged and finally, finally got the the gun that his dad killed himself with. Mm-hmm. It seemed like that was almost like. I don't know. A permanent, or like I say premonition, but something that kind of. Yeah, it was like a, it was a personal foreshadowing. It's almost mm-hmm. like, okay, now I can yeah, finish this up. And, and and I don't know the time frame of when he got the gun versus, and it's not, yeah. you know, it's not even the same gun. It doesn't matter. No, matter. right. It was, it was, he killed himself with the gun that he had spent every day yeah. with. He loved that gun. Yeah. So it was like an old friend. But yeah. uh, I don't want to talk about the suicide, though. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, and you know, but, uh. What I was going to say is there was a moment in the 1930s when he wrote um, For Whom the Bell Tolls, and he he went to aid in the effort in the Spanish Civil War, which was, you know, the precursor to World War II. It was like the first effort uh, to to beat back fascism and all kinds of intellectuals, including George Orwell. And, you know, like I think Dos Passos was there, too, um, like were in Spain trying to beat back the fascists. And he was there. He showed up for that. And then he wrote a novel that is a quintessential anti-fascist novel. Um, he, you know, he, it wasn't all about like sort of existential isolation with him, although it was mostly about that. <laughs> but I will say to his credit, he was an extremely isolated and lonely man, isolated in his masculinity. And I think that that's what a lot of male readers, yeah, you're right, a lot of a lot of women, women don't tend to read Hemingway, some do, you know, but he's known as a male writer. But I think that that's because, uh, you know, all, you know, I understand that the patriarchy has been incredibly harmful for centuries. With that said, being a man in the 20th century and 21st century can be extremely isolating. And to Hemingway's credit, he did not turn away from that as most men did do, but he looked it in its face and he wrote novels about it and he wrote stories about it. And he said, this is, this is the pain. I'm trying to write in the truest way about the pain that I'm feeling. And that takes courage and frankly like it's the opposite of someone who's trying to hold up the patriarchy you know like uh so while he might have been like big game hunter guy in his real Mm -hmm. life and i like i said i think that was a bit of a farcical performance in his work which is the thing that matters he was not holding up the patriarchy he was shining a light on it Mm -hmm. and saying this is what it leads to and this is where i'm at and it it freaking hurts. So it's really, <laughs> so it's really a sense of vulnerability in his right. work it's that other vulnerable. men were probably not doing at that time. It is, and most of the, you know, most of the characters that he uses, like even like his nurse that you said he, you know, he keeps continuously mm-hmm. bringing back almost everything that whether it seems like this, this oh this person's horrible. I can't believe this character did this. Almost all these are true exploits of somebody that he was around or within that time frame yeah these are all basically fictional characters but real people right and he was a hopeful writer too the sun the sun may set on the world we knew but the sun also rises you know like there we can continue to like look truth in the face and continue to soldier on or a farewell to arms like leaving literally leaving war behind and that's my favorite of his novels. And it's about, a, you know, a soldier who falls in love with a nurse and runs away from the war. And they they create this perfect sort of world in the in the uh, Italian Alps. And uh, maybe it's the Swiss Alps. I can't remember what side of the border they're on. But, but it's so beautiful. 
and it's tragic, um, but it's beautiful. And he was such a romantic, which is what really hurts because none of his ma- he couldn't make his marriages work. But there was like a lot of, and that's probably why maybe it was because of his romanticism, and nobody could ever quite live up to that or that nurse that he fell in love with when he was eighteen. You know, right? And I'll, um, you know, he, like you said, his mom was a. A harsh woman. Yeah, right, right. Uh, he was never able to please her. It's hard to outpace that one. Too. Yeah, yeah, so I, I think if he – it would be interesting to see if he had made a life with that first nurse. Yeah, well, if that had worked. You know, or if like he a, had never had his legs blown up when he right. was 18, what he what would he have been like? Would he have ever even been a good writer? You know, like, or, or would we know his name? That is know? so true. Like, yeah. because I feel like maybe that was a tipping point of some sort that – it really elevated his work past the tragedy. Yeah. He could never go yeah. home again. He yeah. never really t- returned. I mean, he would, you know, go to Montana and and, um, and Idaho and Idaho. stuff like that. But he, mm-hmm. but he really never felt at home in America again. And that's why he was in Paris in the twenties, which would, like, well, you say there were, what ten years. I mean, he was there over a decade. Yeah, and Gertrude Stein. I was going like, to say that was the time of the. The it, writers, well, right? Yeah, that, when he was, was in Paris. Yeah, when he was in I Paris. Mean, everybody was there. Picasso, Another thing like that came said. with it is that. Some people, like, you know, his, they're like, oh, well, he was a really heavy drinker. But he was like, somehow that's how he functioned the best, mm-hmm. according with, with his life. People are like, I wonder where he, you know, he got that. His mom wasn't a drinker. His dad didn't drink ever. Right. So he started doing it. And then some of it is actually just location. Mm-hmm. Because he was in Italy during Prohibition. He where, would get... Yeah, and he would get drunk with uh, with James Joyce. They would go on long drinking benders, and you know, and F. Scott Fitzgerald. You can't not you can't <laughs> hang out with F. Scott Fitzgerald and not get hammered. Well, right? I mean, that whole bunch of writers. I mean, these are very damaged people. Yeah, absolutely. all of them. I mean, that's why they're great writers. The sadly, the war damaged yeah. everyone. Yeah, um, you're right. And uh, but then he he ended up in the right spot, Paris in the 1920s. I mean, you can't. And Gertrude Stein introduced him to the paintings of Cezanne, and Cezanne was where he really these short, quick brushstrokes. Mm-hmm. And he said, "I want my my writing to be like that." And so, um, and that was you know this sort of post-impressionistic style of painting where you get truth out of short, quick brushstrokes, and the truth is. Not if you look at it up close, you know, you can't see it, but the truth is there, sort of hidden behind these like flashes of paint. Mm-hmm. And that's how what he does with his words. You can see it. Um, it's so the the truth is behind there. And mm-hmm. if you look at the facade of it, it's so simple. It's really masterful. So you said that your favorite is a farewell to arms. I think I know what yours is, but Brandon, what is your favorite? It's Old Man of the Sea. Yeah. I, I think it describes. I don't know. It kind of describes life as a as a whole. Yeah, it's a beautiful book. Yeah, I mean, and it's short. I mean, yeah. it's really short. And some people are like, "Oh, that's why you like it," because it's you know. It's, <laughs> and if read. anyone wants to read a really fun dishy uh, like Hemingway book, I recommend A Movable Feast, which is about Paris in the twenties. But so what happened is he went back to Paris in the nineteen fifties, and the Ritz Hotel. It turned out he hadn't been back there since the 20s. And they said, oh, or maybe it was in the 40s, like during the liberation of Paris. Think, anyway, yeah. so they said, we've still got your trunk here from 20 years ago. Oh, my gosh. It was like in the back, wow. you know, like all dusty. And he went back there and got it. <laughs> and it was full of his old journals. Wow. And he'd been writing in the cafes of Paris in the 1920s. So he turned that into this book, A Movable Feast, like 20 or 30 years later. And he was at such a remove that he could really dish on all these people. And it's like, you know... Uh, he he does not he doesn't hold any punches and uh, it's pretty fun to read. 
I'll have to read that. I've not read it. So why do you think, or maybe you don't think, but why is he or not relevant today? I think man in general, being men or women, uh, there's always going to be an internal struggle with how you embrace, whether it be nature or nurture, like from your parents to society and to everything else around you and how you deal with it. Are you going to, you know, grab it by the bootstraps or are you going to fall by the wayside? And I think he's relevant because he he did the, you know, he did the the right thing. Like you said, he, he kind of stood it up right in his face and fought back. I think, especially in, in the climate we're in now, you know, the whole world is like in a, you know, stand your ground type state. Like, mm-hmm. you know, where we, we want to be, we want to embrace everybody, but also, you know, stand up for what you believe in mm-hmm. and try to do the right thing mm-hmm. and, and don't let, don't let the man get you down if, if they will. That's the simplest yeah. way I can put it. Yeah. So there's two, there's two Hemingways. There's the writer and there's the, the man, the celebrity. And, um, I think the celebrity has become irrelevant. Um, the big game hunter, like man's man. Boxer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, part of me misses that. Like, I think that's kind of a bummer in a way. I know that it's unhealthy and all that stuff, but like, if, if, if the world is only Jonathan Franzen, I don't want to live in that world, you know? Um, like, so. Well, here's the deal. I mean, it's, you know, we all laugh at the, at the commercial with the world's most interesting man. And right. I think we think of, that's Hemingway. Right. He's the guy that was everywhere and on planes and on boats and right. on in the war. And then now he's a writer and now he's, yeah. he, he was everywhere. Right. And you know, the guy, the most interesting man in the world on a commercial is kind of a cool guy. Right. But then you see Hemingway and you're like, Oh, that old guy, you know, the man's man. Eh. I but, think he was performing an old style of masculinity yeah, and that has gone away, totally. but we yeah. haven't figured out how to replace it, what to replace it with. And mm-hmm. that's why we have such high suicide rates among men now. We have like such high drug abuse rates. We have such high like, pr- you know, prison incarceration rates. We don't know how to be men anymore. And the 19th century was super problematic. Like it was <laughs> not good for anyone but men. Yeah. I, I certainly recognize that. But uh, in the 19th century, there was like, the sort of noble scholar explorer. There was a man who was a fan. He was good to his family. He had he had a moral code. He was a he educated himself, and then he also you know went to the North Pole to understand how weather systems work and how you know polarities were. All of this stuff, you know. And we could look to that guy and go, yes, like. So I think that Hemingway was trying to hold on. So he was white knuckling that old masculinity because he. It, he was. It was a great tragedy to him to see it see it slipping away, and that was not to say that I think he saw it as a tragedy that women were becoming like coming into their own or anything like that. Maybe he did. I mean, he could certainly be a jerk, but uh, <laughs> but I think that he he was purely focused on the tragedy of the loss of masculinity, uh, traditional modes of masculinity. With that said, the work. I don't think the work will ever become truly irrelevant because that was his entire goal was to remain relevant. That was why he would always say, write one true sentence. And he was focused on this thing, what what T.S. Eliot called the objective correlative, which was a method of expressing something that would always be true, that would always key into some eternal part of human nature. Mm -hmm. Not male nature, but human nature. And so as a bookish weirdo kid from West Texas, like, (laughs) that's what I saw. 
in The Sun Also Rises was that sense of isolation and that sense of being an outsider that I really recognized. I think Hemingway always saw himself as an outsider and was never really comfortable. He was pretty shy in reality, and I think he was never really comfortable you know, it's kind of the, one of those things where he's like, I'm a celebrity and I'm going to embrace it because I don't know what to do with it. But he was a he was still a kind of broken little kid in a lot of ways, you know. And you find that over and over and over again in the story. He was a middle kid, too, I believe. Was he? I believe, yeah. yeah. Right. He had some that older sisters. And, oh, yeah. yeah. I think yeah. he was like the one of six. Yeah. He was um, Jam Brady, wasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> you, you know what's an, another unique perspective? And I don't know if they're going to engage in the, all the mental health um, aspects of it. But I am curious to know if, if he was undiagnosed bipolar. Yeah. And then um, in more recent times, there's uh, they call it DID, which is a dissociative identity disorder. Mm. But the, the person I would most identify with it that I've recognized and that is diagnosed is Herschel Walker. Oh, yeah. So Herschel Walker, you know, awesome record-setting college football player. Then he goes to the Dallas Cowboys. Then he gets traded, and he never really has a home. At one point, he even comes back to the Cowboys late in the 90s. But even he's in his 50s now, but he was an Olympic bobsledder. He joined the UFC and started doing MMA fighting in his Mm -hmm. 50s. Mm -hmm. Still undefeated, and every time I turn around, it's like Herschel Walker is doing this. Herschel Walker is doing this, mm-hmm. and it's like he was afraid to get old mm-hmm. and tried to reinvent who he was or who he could be relevant as. Mm-hmm. So I wonder, like, you know, with you know, obviously you got the riding, and then you got the hunting, mm-hmm. and then you got you know at the at the head of the pool. They had said it was in Cuba and and. Uh, and Key West as well, that he put up a boxing ring and mm-hmm. liked to spar with his friends and they come over. As My favorite more... story of his is a boxing story, 50 Grand, yeah. it's called. Mm. I've heard that story. Yeah, um, um, it's a great story. But yeah, you write about boxing. I wish more people would write about boxing. Yeah. <laughs> boxing is like, great to write, read about. So I, I wonder if he was trying to reinvent himself and basically, uh, I don't know, build himself up to be a bigger man than that little kid that you're describing that yeah maybe he was trying to escape it and trying to i don't win him over i don't know yeah maybe that's a good theory i think that there's probably something to that yeah Yeah. in preparation of the documentary coming out uh, i'm going to ask both of you what would you tell somebody maybe somebody that has never read anything by hemingway or um maybe they just want to revisit him as not required reading because sadly that's that was my first taste of Hemingway was required. Um, and it did not leave a good taste in my mouth. It was not something I enjoyed reading, yeah. sadly. And I mean, required reading rarely does. Well, right? and, and a 16 year old girl yeah. reading A Farewell to Arms. Yeah. Like, what does that have to do with anything in my life right totally. now? Yeah. No, and I, I yeah. do think if I revisited it, maybe I would glean something different from it mm-hmm. this time. But if there's somebody that has not read Hemingway, what would you recommend they start with? I don't know. Sun also rises. Yeah. That's kind of the way. I think that's probably where I would say start. Yeah, I mean, that's what I started with. I would actually say start with uh, the short stories. Um, okay. Well, there's and there's tons of them. Yeah, there's one called The Killers, which was has been made into a couple of different movies, but it's a very simple thing about a couple of, like, 
kind of gangster-style killers who walk into a diner in, in Michigan. And it's almost all dialogue. It's so fun to read, and it's so lightning quick, and uh, it's so noir. I mean, I love noir. So, like, it's it's such a just badass crime, little crime story. That 150 Grand I mentioned, which is such a fun, really cool boxing story. Like, that's the thing that gets lost with all this, like, existentialism and isolation is, like, some of this stuff's really fun to read. You know, Maybe that's what I need. I need the fun stuff. Well, it, The Killers already sounds right up my yeah, alley. Yeah, it's totally good. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's good. And then watch the, uh, there's a movie by Robert, I don't know if it's Siodmak. It's S-I-O-D-M-A-K. I don't know if, I've never heard anyone pronounce it. But it's a great old noir film that's based, okay. it's based on that story. Okay. So um, I'm looking forward to the documentary. I hope you guys yeah, are interested in it. Yeah, um, I've seen a five-minute preview of it, and it's really well done. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's Kim Burns. It, it's going to be great. So, sure. um, so I appreciate talking with me and chatting with about Hemingway. It really is giving me hope that I can find something that appeals to me. I and mean, I think the short stories are probably be. You know, it's like there's nothing wrong. Like sometimes a guy just writes a book for dudes and that's all right. And that's why we have Beloved, you know, which is probably better than anything Hemingway ever wrote. You know, like there's room in the tent for everybody. I, I want more of all kinds of books coming in all the time because there's always that kid. You know, I was a little white straight kid, and I was like, I found my book. And yeah. it was like, all the other kids are like, what about me? You know? <laughs> it's like, so of course, like, yeah. But, uh, totally. But yeah, I, he, ha- he has a, and especially for a weirdo outsider for, like me when I was a kid, it was a book for weirdo outsiders, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate both of you. Baker, I'm glad uh, to see you again. Hey, and, I'm in glad person. to see you too, Amy. Yeah. It was lovely. And Brandon, I see you every day, but it was right. good to see you <laughs> at work. That was fun. So. <laughs> yeah, it was good to see you too, Brandon. And Hillary, who's sitting over in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, y'all. Check Me Out is recorded in the FM90 and Panhandle PBS studios on the Washington Street campus of Amarillo College. The show is produced by Hillary Holsey and me, Amy Hart. Big thank yous to Colin Lutz, Jake Day for being our editor, Stevie Brashears for designing our logo, and the Mag 7 for providing music. Check us out on Facebook. And make sure you hit subscribe wherever you may be listening.